Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is singer-songwriter Beatty Wolf. First of all, there's a quiet revolution going on in the music business that you might not be aware of. Last week, the record label Concord Bicycle bought Imagem for $500 million, and that included 250,000 copyrights. So now Concord Bicycle has about 400,000 total, including copyrights by Phil Collins, Mark Ronson, and Daft Punk, among many, many others. And what this means is now we're starting to see the major labels and then another level right below them of mini majors but specializing in rights management and that includes concord bicycle cobalt and bmg they're doing rights management which looks like it's the future of the music business now major labels are never going to go away because there's an infrastructure that they have that took decades to build and no matter what you just can't duplicate that Used to be all about distribution. Distribution isn't a big deal anymore, at least on the physical side of things, although the majors pretty much have that knocked. It's the infrastructure to take a star to a superstar level. And that's the hard part. You can make a B or C level artist into a star, into an A list level artist, but to go to the next step, the superstar step, really takes some infrastructure that only the major labels have. That being said, the future isn't so much in that, it's in rights management. Rights management meaning the publishing and licensing rights, which pretty much has always been one of the ways that people got wealthy in the music business, although not many people knew about this. And the people that were smart to publishing that got into it, and this goes way, way back into the 20s and 30s, right to the beginning of the modern music business, people that were smart to that, those were the ones that got wealthy. So now we're starting to see a consolidation of all that. And now basically we have three kind of mini majors involved, Concord Bicycle, Cobalt, and BMG. Now the interesting thing there is Concord Bicycle is actually owned by over 70 individual and institutional investors. And whenever you have a lot of investors, they usually want to get their money out. So I think what we'll see here is someone is going to buy them. And it's probably either a major label or it's a big conglomerate that has a lot of dough, like a telecom, that will want to get into the music business. And this will be the easy way in. And it will also be a way that they can get in and kind of look future-proof. So keep your eye out for that because this is the way of the future of the music business. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week music mixing primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Another interesting thing in the news this last week was the use of sound cannons by police departments. Now they're using something called an LRAD, which is Long Range Acoustic Device. It was developed by the military after the cold destroyer terrorist attack. And it's been used in a lot of situations since then. Now, for instance, for the military, they used it 
with Noriega, if you remember that back in Panama, in order to get him to surrender. That was one thing. And you also see it on cruise ships and freighters to ward off pirates. In fact, what happens is an LRAD can be used as just a big loudspeaker, but it's very, very directional. Now, there's also a mode on it called deterrent, and this puts out a narrow beam of beeps at up to 152 decibels at one meter, which is really, really loud. Now, why it was in the news was the NYPD used this to put down a riot in 2014. A number of the people that were in that crowd, not necessarily rioters, some were photographers, for instance, brought a suit against the NYPD, claiming that they got migraines and sinus pain and dizziness, ringing in the ears, all sorts of nasty things like that. The judge basically wouldn't allow them to sue the NYPD, but did rule this as a weapon that could be used for excessive force. So now he basically put on notice all of the police departments that you have to use this with some restraint because, in fact, it could cause a lot of damage. And those of us in the industry know that that's a fact. This is just taking what we know to have happened already and taking it to another level and weaponizing sound, so to speak. So this isn't a great development from the standpoint that it's not exactly something that you want used on you. But on the other hand, if you're on a cruise ship and it's attacked by pirates, this is a good way to get rid of them. My guest today is B.D. Wolf, who in addition to being an excellent singer-songwriter with three albums and an EP under her belt, is on the cutting edge of tech. B.D.'s first album, Eight, featured a unique 3D interactive album. Then, her Montague Square album featured a one-off musical jacket and the world's first deck of playing cards using NFC technology. Her latest endeavor, Raw Space, has B.D. streaming her album in 360-degree 3D augmented reality from the Anacoke Chamber at the famous Bell Labs. I spoke with B.D. via phone from San Francisco. How did you get into music? Were you always musically inclined when you were a kid? Was it something that came late? How did that happen? Because it's different for everybody. I'm just curious how, how it happened for you. For me, I, um, you know, for as long as I can remember, uh, from a very early age, I started writing songs. Um, and it was something, because as a kid, I loved storytelling. You know, I would write stories and or. Uh, and when I was really tiny, I would get my dad to write out, to transcribe these stories that I had in my mind. I, I'm sure that it, the process was very <laughs> painful for him, you know, because I was three or something. And I just remember having so much fun telling these stories and coming up with these characters and putting on plays. And, and um, then I realized that you could put stories to music and you could combine you know, the lyrical, poetic power of word with the emotive power of melody. And suddenly these stories could reach more people and, you know, move more people. Um, so I, I remember, you know, really the, the first time I wrote a song, which was, I think it was around five or six, and I had been getting these um, piano lessons at school uh, which I kind of hated. I w really wasn't interested in learning um, scales or anything. But, you know, I, I loved making things up and playing. Um, and I <laughs> had this 
sort of song in in my mind and I was on my way to my piano lesson and I thought, well, maybe I could get my teacher to, if I sing it to him, he can work out the chords. Um, so that's what I did. And, you know, at the end of the lesson, I went home with a tape cassette with this, you know, this song that I'd written, this, my first um, composition. And I, I began to use my piano lessons really as as song writing lessons where I would go in and, you know, okay, this is the new song I have. And my piano teacher would work out the chords and we'd laid these tapes down. And um, I don't think my parents had any idea that I was actually not, <laughs> not <laughs> learning piano. Um, so, yeah, it was something that just made sense to me. It was the one thing that came very easily um, and and always has and it's you know I think everyone has that that sort of um, area where they just feel comfortable and they don't really have to think and it's just a natural process and songwriting was always that for me. Were you always a solo artist or did you play with other people or a band or something when you first started playing guitar? So yeah I initially I was playing you know more on piano and writing songs that way and then around uh, 14, I found this old guitar in the house that, you know, it was like my grandmother's guitar that no one played. And it was totally dusty and broken. And because I was always quite, um, you know, I was quite contrary. So, you know, I didn't want to learn piano. I wanted to sort of figure things out myself. And then with the guitar, no one had suggested pl- me playing the guitar. So I very much then wanted to do that. And I had my first guitar lesson from this um, builder that was fixing our ceiling that was also like a Spanish Spanish virtuoso, you know, um, picking, like very sort of, um, you know, arpeggiated style. And he taught me this song and, you know, I just, I fell in love with the guitar and I started really using that as the main instrument that I was writing on. Um, And then I formed this, this band you know back in uh school and it was me and a and a female uh vocalist or you know so she'd she'd sing most of most of the songs and then I would do harmonies and uh you know some songs I'd sing but I wrote all the material um and I played guitar for that and we had a drummer and bass player we kind of saw it as this female Led Zeppelin um because I at that time I was just totally obsessed with you know Led Zeppelin and and the Stones and ACDC and um, Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden. I kind of had a very narrow scope just on, you know, just on that rock um, and that kind of hard rock period. Um, And I was learning a lot, you know, I was kind of making a lot of things up based, you know, more in that style. Um, And so then, you know, after doing that for a, a while, um, I kind of decided I wanted to be, you know, solo and just, I realized that a lot of the music we were making was quite dark and quite, you know, it was very grungy and quite angsty and that we had sort of a number of offers, um, you know, from various sort of, uh, labels and producers. And, and I, I was, you know, about 16 and I thought, you know, do I really want to commit to making this kind of music for the next 10 years? Um, and I just felt it wasn't really, uh, you know, it, it was resonating with me then, but I felt like I would, you know, I'd grow and I'd want to do different things. 
So I, at that point, I went solo. Um, and then it was really a case of just finding, you know, musicians that would, you know, accompany me and uh, whether that was in the live live shows or um, in the studio sessions. But having those, you know, having that songwriting um, sort of that position as a songwriter as the core with these, you know, backing backing um, uh, sort of accompanyists. I find it interesting because your albums are somewhat sparse. I mean, they don't have the big lush production that is kind of in vogue these days. How long does it take you to do an album? And, and you're also prolific, so you come out with one a year. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I have this bank of songs. Um, I have so many songs, you know, from really from the time I, I started writing as a kid, um, with that being such a enjoyable and easy process, um, it you know it was like having this tap that I could turn on and and I, I realized you know I think I got to the point with the, around the first album um, this is a very morbid thought but I I imagined you know no longer being here and, and thinking oh you know how many albums would I have have left and I really always wanted you know so much of my motivation in being a musician is is to leave music you know for generations. To come, not you know, not making music necessarily for the trend of the day, but writing songs that would continually touch people and, and move people. Um, and so I suddenly thought, well, you know, I've got all these songs, and I really I want to be, you know, the way the Beatles were doing two albums, sometimes more a year, and they just they had this, they have this um, tremendous catalogue that is so rich and so diverse and shows so many variations of mood and genre. And I just feel like, you know, not every artist has, you know, a, a, a large catalogue, but with the songwriting being very natural, I, I do. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, power up that en engine and make sure that I was, you know, getting that material out. Um, and, you know, on the production side, I think a lot of my influences, a lot of the people that I listen to, a lot of the songs that continually resonate with me, you know, they, they are fairly sparse uh, on that production side, even if they're lush in terms of, you know, they're, they're sort of, um, you know, there's this kind of Baroque pop or, you know, they're quite ornate there's there's a, a minimalism in that all those instruments were you know played live together and they and that could be reproduced on stage i think the trend now is you know for a lot of music to have you know a lot of instruments that whether it's you know synthesizers um emulating different sounds that then when you get to that live show it wouldn't be played by a traditional band um and i so i think i'm quite old school in that respect um, and, you know, I really like space within arrangements. You know, one of the first records that made me want to make an album was um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers. Um, and I heard it when I was eight in this kind of sleepy fisherman village in Portugal. Um, and, you know, it's probably not that appropriate for an eight-year-old. But um, the, the people that we were staying with at the time were just, you know, quite quite um sort of alternative and quite wild and they would play it to me and sing it to me 
and um and it just totally turned my world upside down you know i thought this was the most exciting thing that had ever happened just hearing this raw album and you know looking back on that experience or just thinking about the album now you know rick rubin is you know he's a master at at sort of creating space within arrangements and really letting you know that song breathe and you know if it's johnny cash and just having that those rich you know vocals just kind of sit so above everything else and just with these really subtle um you know this this subtle kind of complementary arrangement you know, i think that 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 is definitely you know my style i think yeah i would say and just as you're talking i'm thinking to myself after listening to many of the songs on, on all the albums that it's exactly as you say where it feels like no matter what it is even if it's lush if a song is particularly lush it still feels like it can be easily performed live which yeah, as exactly. you say it's not in vogue to be able to do that with a lot of the records that are made today unfortunately no no i i was just going to say and you know then you get that experience in a live show where you know most of the time i'm not saying all, all of the time but where a lot of the time people are performing to backing tracks um and you know for me i just think there are so many amazing you know so if you think of that of that donny hathaway album i think it's 1971 um or it's a, a year in the 70s and that whole album is live, you know, and you hear him sing Jealous Guy and he's in this sort of noisy bar and the, the sound and the recording and the performance is just, I mean, it's one of my favorite albums ever. And, you know, I think you get something so magical with a live show when it is alive, you know, when the, when it is dynamic and, that person is sort of feeling it in that moment. And, you know, you have that um, sort of synergy among the players. So, yeah, for me, that's that's really important to make music that can <laughs> that can be live. Okay, well, that illustrates a point then. I'm, I'm curious, when you were getting your musical chops together, did you gig a lot? Or how much did you gig? Let's put it yeah. like that. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I think that there are definitely... Um, you know, some artists love gigging, some love writing, some love, you know, being in the studio. For me, the gigging part was always the part that in some ways I, I was least excited about just because, you know, that I love the studio so much. I love that feeling of, you know, being in the studio and being able to sort of realize this song in a way that can then live on, you know, and, and reach people at different points in their lives. And, you know, you don't have to recreate it. You can kind of perfect it as much as it can be perfected to then exist, you know, beyond that, that session. Um, so with live shows, you know, I, I think that they're definitely one of those, it's kind of like a roller coaster, you know, you have amazing ones and suddenly you remember why, <laughs> you know, why you play live and why it's, why it's tremendous. And then you have, you know, ones where the sound's terrible and there are so many uncontrollable factors that, you know, you feel can get in the way. Um, but I, I definitely, so, you know, from the age of, 
eight, you know, I was performing my songs first at like school assemblies when everyone else in, that I knew was doing, you know, a cover song of the Spice Girls hit at the time or whatever was popular. And I would do an original composition, which I didn't think was particularly odd. But, you know, looking back, I, I was always the only person that that did an original composition. Um, and there was this kind of very funny moment, which was one of my first, I think it was actually the first performance I gave um, of this, this um, song uh, called You Can't Get Away From Me, Girl, which was also <laughs> kind of strange because you know all my friends are well, why are you singing about a girl and I couldn't explain it but it was just part of that storytelling you know just p- telling a story and, ha- and having a role and um, I had backing dancers and singers and we'd worked out this you know this whole performance and got on stage and you know started the song and they froze and they <laughs> didn't do any of the moves and they didn't sing a word and I was kind of there, there thinking, oh, God, what do I do? And it just powered on as if, you know, nothing was happening. And we got to the end of the, the song and I sort of, you know, like, guys, what happened? And um, and afterwards I found out that Mick Jagger had actually been in the audience, which was, I'm sure, did not connect to why they froze because, you know, we didn't know who they they were at that time. Um, but it's just kind of it's just quite a funny story. So that was that was my first um, my first gig in a way. And then you know when I started with the grunge band, there was all the you know more the Led Zeppelin, uh, the girl Led Zeppelin band. It was that was you know involved a lot of gigging, and that was kind of me playing more like lead guitar, and you know it was definitely noisier. Um, so I think, you know, just over the years, it's never been a case of doing prolonged tours, but it's been something that I've done in, you know, in a variety of, of different ways in different kind of environments. Um, so I, you know, I think that's something that is definitely, uh, has been, you know, pretty well honed, um, yeah, in a sense. the reason why I brought it up is because the way you record with the idea that you're going to have to play this live or you have the ability to play it live, what it does is suggest that you've had enough time on stage to understand how that all works, where that isn't always the case anymore because there's not as many venues to play as there used to be. And I think this is anywhere in the world right now. And uh, as a result, most musicians aren't as good as they w- once were because they just don't have the stage time that they did. I yeah, I completely agree. And I think also, you know, when you're when you are working, it works both ways. You know, because I think a lot of the stuff that you work out for that live performance, you know, the arrangement, if you're going to do it as a trio, you know, double bass and drums and guitar and how you make that work as a core, um, you know, so many of the songs that were worked out as, you know, live songs with a, in, in quite a stripped back way then became, you know, completely the foundations of the the studio versions. So I think it's, it's, it's that it actually works both ways where, you know, just having those live shows and, and developing those parts and, you know, really being able to hone that over time as you play it live, you know, you then go into the studio and, and you kind of know 
you know, you have the structures for a lot of them already there. Um, so no, I, I completely agree with you, and I think it is actually that it is that two-way process. Okay, so let's get into some of the more unique things that you do or that you're associated with. On Burst, your first EP you did, or your EP, you did an iPhone app for that, and on Bright, a 3D interactive album, and then Montague Square was uh, with the, the NFC album card deck and the musical jacket. Then now in Raw Space, the 360 stream. So you were very, very cutting edge, or you have been. Was this something that just sort of happened to you, or were you looking for another way to brand yourself, or was it just serendipity? It was It was definitely not the first. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, not. I, I mean, like in total, um, in, in all truth, nothing has been done with anything of a brand or marketing hat on. Um, it's actually the opposite. It's, it's all come from me being such a huge music lover um, and growing up, you know, and, and writing songs and then discovering my parents' record collection and looking at these records like, oh, these are musical stories, you know, and opening the vinyls up and reading the liner notes and reading the lyrics and having that artwork in my mind you know as i'd listened to an album and there was a ceremony to that as well you know so you had this wonderful combination of this tangible component that was like an art object you know in its own right this ability to tell a story through an album through that content and you know the just keeping the album together as a whole and then you had the ceremony of actually putting the needle on and making t- you know making time and having headspace um and so that as a kid that imprinted itself on me so deeply that i wasn't imagining i mean i guess i was thinking of oh, what will my album sound like you know in years to come but i was very much thinking what's it going to look like and what will it feel like and those two um those you know those two factors were kind of well integrated into the process of listening to the music. Um, so then, you know, obviously fast forward a number of years and, and it was the time for my first album to be released. Um, and it's a totally different era and, you know, the tangible has been replaced by the digital. And I really wanted to try and reconnect those two. And I wanted to try and create something of, a, you know, a, a new format that was like, the vinyl for for today, um, just to encourage people or to sort of simulate that feeling of you know that I had as a kid with this uh, these vinyls just being transported and really allowing you know the the ex- that experience to be deep and meaningful. Um, and so I I started thinking, well, how could you create a vinyl for the you know, the mobile generation, like what would that look like? Um, and so with eight, you know, it literally was a vinyl on your iPhone or iPad. And you had, you know, all the, the liner notes, all the content, the record, the lyrics, but then you could slot your iPhone into this little Japanese device and it turned it into a theater for the palm of your hand. And you had someone, you know, performing to you. 
Um, and so, you know, that was actually the, that was the first, I mean, I had the birth DP before that, but that was the first real experiment of can you make, you know, this format um, sort of, you know, can you reinterpret it for where we are now? Um, and then obviously the deck of cards and the musical jacket for Montague Square um, and now, you know, the raw space experience, they've all been variations on that same theme of just creating this, you know, more immersive, multi-sensory experience for music that has lost so much of its, you know, artwork, its uh, rich content, its ability to tell a story. And of course, that sort of ceremonial experience, because we're now, you know, inundated with noise and stimuli. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I can't emphasize enough how it's just, you know, me loving music and me wanting people to, you know, just really have a deeper experience with, with albums um, in the way that, you know, I, I believe is, is really important for us. Yeah, I get it for sure, especially, as you say, there is a ceremony to putting on a piece of vinyl. I have to tell you, I have a very good friend who recently found a whole stack of albums, and he searched around, and, and this is in his house, he was cleaning up, and he found a, a record player, his old record player, so he plugs it all up, puts the first album on, and his wife is in the next room, and all of a sudden she walks in the room and she says, you know everybody's right. It does sound better. This is the vinyl playing. It's, you know, on a, on a record that's all scratchy on a really old beat up turntable. And yet she was able to hear, and, and not someone who's in the business or anything, but a civilian, so to speak, able to hear the difference and then got into the whole album experience. So it's something that unfortunately we're missing. And I'm glad you're trying to bring it back in some fashion because we need that. I think we do, and I, I and I think that there is something. It's something I've been really thinking about a lot, and which you know, with raw space, I thought about a lot um, because obviously it was it was physically streaming from one of the world's quietest rooms in this room that immediately instills a sense of ceremony and you know quiets the noise around, and you know, so I was really thinking, what is it that makes us connect with something um, and it kind of imprint itself on us and on our memory. And I, I believe that it's the combination of having some tangible trigger, you know, something that is, that you're holding that's, you know, kind of aesthetically pleasing um, and something of that ceremony, of that kind of space around us to be transported um, where, you know, we're not being distracted, where our imagination is kind of free to reign into that world of the record. And I feel like if you asked a lot of people, you know, what their favorite albums are, I think so many of them would probably predate, you know, the digitalization of music because they're albums that they just so remember you know, in that kind of unique way where they just rushed and bought it from a store and, you know, got home and kind of totally consumed by this, how exciting it was. They got it and, 
you know, looked at the cover and imagined what, you know, that, that cover symbolized and looked at the artwork and read the lyrics and just tried to piece together, you know, this whole, this whole sort of story of what that album was about and then listening to the music. Um, you know, for me, Abbey Road was definitely one of those that was just so ingrained in my, um, in my thinking of albums. Um, and I feel that's something we really need um, because, you know, music is such a powerful force, you know, for good and for uplifting and moving. And, and you know, so I just think we need to create more experiences that, that have that combination of storytelling, tangibility and ceremony that then allow the music to be really imprinted and, you know, really... We, we we can absorb it. Boy, I could see how we could talk for a really long time. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of things I'd like to follow up on, but uh, I want to get back to the, the AT&T Anacoke Chamber here for a second. You know, by the way, I looked all over for the 360 stream. I couldn't find it. Was that a live stream and then it went away? Yeah, so the, the idea of the live stream, it's actually going to be... Um, released very soon as you know this full stereoscopic um experience um but the idea with the live stream was you know i i was very much thinking okay if you know when i came out with eight that time people would it was digital downloads that was the main format for music so i was thinking how do you how do you provide a counter to that and with today, you know, the streaming streaming music being so prevalent, uh, I was thinking with Raw Space, well, what's the counter streaming experience that I could create? Um, and so the idea was that this record, um, you know, was the new record was playing on a turntable on repeat uh, continuously for a week in, you know, the Bell Labs anechoic chamber. Um, and people would log in via the 360 cameras and be able to explore this amazing space and, you know, hear the record in real time played in this unique sonic environment. Um, and then, you know, we'd have with the, the generative augmented reality, um, it would appear as if the artwork was flying off the vinyl and surrounding you and transporting you into the world of each particular track. Um, and and that was, you know, something that was kind of visually, uh, a lot of those visuals, you know, I sat down with the design team, this company called Design.io, um, who'd actually built my 3D vinyl for eight. And, you know, we talked about, okay, let me play you this song. And, you know, the images that would come to their mind or the images that I had as I wrote it. Um, so with every spin of the record, a lot of, a lot of what you were seeing was hard coded, you know, so for track to the man who you'd be in this dusky desert that just seemed to go on forever, it's kind of Salvador Dali desert and the chamber walls had collapsed and you were watching this Yakometi character sort of hanging himself and there was this flurry of crows. And so while everyone who was logging in, if they saw that particular song, you know, that's what they would experience. There was this um, generative element to the AR, which meant that every time the record played, 
the visuals would evolve so that, you know, in the climax of the song, you could actually be swept up in a sandstorm or I could be, you know, swept up with all these crows surrounding me. Um, so I loved that idea of really presenting the visual landscape for, for that song to kind of um, come to life, um, you know, on top of, but allowing there to be these elements that would change every time someone logged in. Um, but at, at its core, it was this thing where it was almost like an art installation. You know, you were logging into this room and you couldn't fast forward couldn't rewind you couldn't affect the stream in any way in terms of you know how we're now shuffling all the time through music um and what but whatever you saw would you know in some ways be unique to you so it was something that you know felt also very personal um and that will be you know obviously it's now not live because it was a, a period of a week which was actually the first um youtube 360 uh, live AR stream that had been done and the longest that has been done um, but we'll have you know now that full experience will be up on YouTube from I think next week um, sometimes so people will be able to revisit it and you can yeah I, I mean I could probably share stuff with you before then if you wanted to check it out yeah oh most definitely most definitely but let me ask you a question why pick an anechoic chamber was there something specific about that environment seemed to lend itself to what you're trying to achieve? Yeah. So I think, you know, that anechoic chamber and the first time I went in into it, um, you know, I didn't have any plans of incorporating it into the album. Um, I went in and one of the engineers said, you probably won't want to stay in here longer than than 10 minutes because people get, you know, nauseous and disorientated. Yeah, yeah. And I went in, I went in with my guitar and, um, you know, and thought that I'd been in there for maybe 10 or 15 minutes just playing music. Uh, and I came out and it was like an hour or two hours later um, because I just felt so incredibly comfortable in this room wow. and, and so in awe of the space, you know, it's this, tremendous um this tremendous place of of discovery you know in uh the field of sound over the years like so many breakthrough experiments have been done there um it's such a sort of historically rich room in terms of just our understanding of sound and it also has this feeling of almost being in a cathedral even though it's the opposite uh, acoustic environment to a cathedral where you the silence is so profound you feel incredibly reflective and still and you know you you kind of turn turn in um and i loved playing music in that environment because there was that ceremony to even the experience of, of playing a song because the silence between the notes was so profound that, it, you know, you really thought about it. Um, and after I'd had that moment in there and I'd had this idea of this kind of, you know, this antithesis of our streaming experience and, and what that looked like, um, I, I immediately thought, okay, this is the room to launch, 
you know, that raw space experience out of because it would be so lovely to have people even in a virtual way, um, you know, just be able to be in that amazing room and have that moment of sort of stillness, um, but also listen to the music in that, you know, very unique sound environment that is sort of totally without echo and reverb and interference. It's a pure sound environment, really. Um, so that that was the that was the reason for choosing the room. It's a brilliant marketing move. It sounds like you didn't do it with that in mind, but just from the standpoint of you've never seen something like that before. I mean, there, there's things about anechoic chambers here and there, and especially if you're in the business, you know more about it than than if you're just a, a regular musical consumer. But the whole fact that something is being done in an anechoic chamber is so different than, again, any other environment. It's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it, no, it definitely wasn't, it wasn't marketing. It was just, you know, I think when you, with me, it was the same as when I went into Montague Square um, and, and that was very random. You know, I'd, I'd met the tailor at this, um, met this sort of James Bond and, and musician tailor at an event in London. And, you know, we knew of one another and he said, oh, you must come see my, my new home. It's the home of, um, or oh, it was the home of Lennon and Yoko. It was their first home together. And I went over there being a huge Lennon fan and thinking, yeah, you know, of course I'm going to go and have tea. Um, and while, while the tailor was making the tea, I looked around this living room and there were all these photographs. It was, you know, Hendrix there with his vinyls and, uh, McCartney playing guitar and Yoko and Lennon naked and Ringo with his drum kit. And this was all at different points, you know, in, it, it was all sort of chronological rather than at the same time. And, um, the tailor came back in and I said, you know, what is this? place where, where this should be a, a museum or something and you know I didn't really know about it and um, he started telling me the history and you know 50 years ago this was Ringo's rehearsal room because it was close to Abbey Road uh, you know it was his home but he was also using it as his kind of drum studio and then he leased it to McCartney who wrote and recorded Eleanor Rigby in this room and then had his Zapple HQ out of here for a while and was recording William Burroughs and all these beat poets. Um, and then Hendrix comes over from America and needs somewhere to live. And, and McCartney says, oh, I'm leaving. You can come and live here. And Hendrix um, has this terrible argument with his girlfriend one night and she storms off and uh, he writes and records, you know, The Wind Cries Mary in this same room. And then he gets evicted for whitewashing the walls when he's high on acid and um, and Yoko and Lennon move in and restore the peace and start their sort of nude campaigning from there and do the Double Virgins cover. And, you know, he was just telling me, and this is a snapshot, and in that room, you know, you could feel this, this the energy and just amazing sort of you know, resonance of the room, which was then what inspired the musical jacket. Um, and so I think the room, the Bell Labs and a Kirk chamber, for me, it had the same sort of quality where as soon as I stepped in there, I just felt 
different. And I thought, okay, this is the environment for the for raw space. So it, yeah, it was done very instinct instinctively and and from that inspiration point, rather than um, even realizing that it was particularly interesting um, as a as a sort of from you know marketing perspective. Wow. Well, like I said before, we can go on and on here because uh, I could ask you questions all day and get great answers like that. But let me ask you one more question. This is sort of different. It's kind of off the track a little bit, but it's something I ask everyone. In your travels throughout the business, did you ever get a piece of business advice from someone that kind of really made a difference to you? Or maybe was there something that you learned that was really important? Yes. So can I give you two sure. pieces of advice? Yeah. <laughs> one one was from my father who um I'll give you the proper music one next, but something my dad always said to me when I was growing up and um and it's so unpoetical, such a weird expression. For some reason it has just stuck with me um and it is the eye of the farmer fattens the pig um it's actually a bavarian (laughs) expression which you can't find if you google it you cannot find it and i challenged him on this the other day i said look dad if you just if you made up this this (laughs) quote that i've you know really held dear to me all these years and he said no no if you Google it in the, you know, in the original Bavarian, it will come up, but, you know, the translation is not particularly known. Um, but what I took that to mean was, you know, if it's your pig, even the act of overseeing will ensure its growth. Um, and so that leads me on to the second piece of advice, which was given to me by a, a very dear friend um, who was also the the former manager of the Pumpkins and the Pixies and Nirvana, amazing woman called Janet Billig-Rich. And she said to me a couple of years ago, you know, BT, you've got to be the CEO and I'm on your board. Hmm. And that was probably the the second, um, which really, you know, just from that perspective of, you know, being that farmer, being that CEO, looking after your pig, um, that really, really stuck with me. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, when it's all said and done, you have to drive the bus, which is another euphemism here. But I think too many artists let their careers in the hands of managers or agents or whomever when they should be paying much more attention and it would be much to their benefit if they did. So glad you learned that. Good lesson. Thank you. And and I think it's just, you know, that idea that your your artistry can extend beyond music and you know, it it's the whole it's the overall vision and it's how, you know, you also use other mediums to tell that story. Um so, you know, for me it's not just it's not just I mean the music is the core, is the absolute heart of everything, but you know, now I think it's it's really about um, whether it's using technology or o- other mediums almost as a way of recapturing some of music's old school magic. Mm. Um, that's 
what I what I get excited about. To find out more about Beatty, go to BeattyWolf.com. That's B-E-A-T-I-E, Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, all one word, BeattyWolf.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.